This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. And I'm Ariana Brocious. When we flip the switch at home or the office, we expect the lights to come on. It wasn't always that way. Not even a hundred years ago, the vast majority of America didn't have electric power. As we'll talk about with author Michelle Moore, electrifying rural America in the 1930s, one of FDR's New Deal projects, transformed life for so many people. And for decades, our national infrastructure of transmission lines has done a good job, though it's increasingly affected by climate-fueled severe weather events. Those have been very damaging. And in order to slash emissions and stave off even worse climate disruption, we're going to have to switch to renewable energy and electrify just about everything. And there's been a boom in renewable energy projects in the last couple decades. But what some of us tend to forget is that the electricity generated by those projects has to get to the people who need it. And that's where the grid, as it currently exists, might fall short. As we think about the needs and the opportunities that face all of us, the thing that at least keeps me up at night is that transmission expansion. That's Jose Zayas with the American Council on Renewable Energy. Transmission expansion is hard partly because we actually have multiple grids that deliver electricity to different regions. Right, and there are also regional transmission organizations that control and coordinate the flow of energy, which can help different users share power. So even talking about the grid can get pretty wonky pretty fast. (laughs) That's true. For someone who's kind of casually coming to this subject, I would say you can sort of think of it like our national highway system, where we have big interstates and then smaller highways and then streets in our cities and towns. That's not an exact parallel, but it's pretty close. However, the problem is that we now want to begin to send more power back toward the grid as we have solar systems coming online. And our current system needs to be expanded and modernized in order to support this coming electric future. The Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill and the Inflation Reduction Act both have provisions to help do that. But a big obstacle to getting energy projects online is getting them through our current permitting process, which is very slow and tedious. Slow and tedious. That's because there's a lot of local input, a lot of process. Recently, a few big transmission projects have finally been greenlit like TransWest, which will move power from Wyoming across Colorado and Utah to Nevada. That took 18 years to approve. And that's only one of several projects that are finally shovel-ready and yet still have to be built. That's why there's a lot of buzz right now about permitting reform. Of course, like everything else, that has become politicized and polarized between the renewable and fossil fuel camps. But there is growing consensus that permitting reform needs to happen. Just recently, a top trade group for renewables called on environmentalists and progressive Democrats to support permitting reform, which is something Republicans have been advocating for, to fast-track new energy infrastructure. Right, that was from Jason Grimay, new president of the American Clean Power Association, which represents large corporations supplying fossil and clean energy. He basically called out progressives for having what he called solution denial, saying they don't acknowledge the scale and scope needed to drive solutions. We've committed to a low carbon agenda. We've got a continent worth of low carbon resource. If we can't connect the dots, shame on us. That's Pat Wood, a guest on the show today and former advisor to Governor George W. Bush. In order to better understand what needs to be done to modernize the grid, I talked with Pat. He's also a former chairman of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, probably the most important agency in this area. And he led the Texas Public Utilities Commission. Now he's chief executive at Hunt Energy Network. Our conversation also included Jennifer Gardner, vice chair of the Western Energy Imbalance Market, and Jose Zayas, executive vice president of policy and programs with the American Council on Renewable Energy. Before we get into it, a few acronyms you should know. FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, ISO, an independent system operator, people who manage the electrons moving around and making sure the grid stays up and balanced, and especially RTO, Regional Transmission Organization. There are a few different ISOs and RTOs around the country that help control and coordinate the flow of power across regions. Texas produces more wind power than any other state and more than a quarter of the total U.S. wind power supply. But because of the lack of grid connection, it can't sell or send that power to the East Coast or to California, for example. I asked Pat Wood how we could change that. Political desires in Texas like to keep the federal government out. That's probably a sentiment that many in the West share. Um, Texas was lucky enough to be big enough to be able to actually do it. But as a practical matter, 
And this is true not just from Texas to the two grids, but within the large eastern grid is there's just not a real strong program to plan and pay for transmission that crosses the large regions. Within ERCOT, the Texas grid, within PJM, the large market in the mid-Atlantic, within New England, there's a lot of good transmission planning and payment and, and reimbursement so that the utilities can invest. But across the boundary lines, those bridges are pretty rickety compared to the nice big ones inside these regions. So inter-regional transmission is a absolute requirement. But it was hard for me to try to get that done at FERC because FERC didn't do the permitting. The states do. That's another FERC being the Federal Energy, the Federal Regulatory. Energy Regulatory Commission, the regulator there, which I headed back in the early part of this century the ability to give a utility rights away in permitting and then the, the tariff to actually pay for it is really not deeply embedded in the federal law. It's a state prerogative. And so a state like Illinois or Colorado or Texas can deal with these matters within their state fine and pay for them and get them built. But it's when you become between two states that the tug of war starts. So, Jennifer, following up on what Pat said, Texas and California have pretty different approaches to energy, taxes, guns, lots of things. And as Pat was saying, in several parts of the country, electric providers are organized under these operators that control and coordinate the flow of power across regions. The West in particular has resisted efforts to do this, and it's partly because they don't want to be led by California or maybe do them exactly the California way. How does that tension influence this discussion around modernizing the electric grids? In the West, we we do have a grid operator, the the California ISO, as you mentioned, is an independent system operator, which for all intents and purposes is, is the same as a regional transmission organization or an RTO. But outside of California, we lack that sort of centralized operator framework to, to manage the grid and to truly optimize it, which is really critical for integrating the increasing amounts of renewable energy that we're seeing, especially in the West. So there, there is resistance to, to joining an RTO, a potential RTO that could be run by California. You mentioned some of California's policies possibly being an impediment to that. You know, we have a, a nice mix of blue and red states in the West. And so those policies are still quite different. I mean, we're seeing a really big growth in clean energy policies across the West, but there are certain states that remain resistant to that. So I think on the one hand, there's concern that if you join an RTO that's operated by a very blue state such as California, that you end up having some of those policies sort of seep into other states that, that might currently still be resistant to them. But I think perhaps the most important impediment that we see today to an RTO potentially being operated by California in the West is that of governance. And when I say governance, I'm talking about the way that the market is, is really overseen. And so right now we've got a California law that essentially says that the California ISO has to be operated by a board that's appointed by the governor and confirmed by the state legislature, the state senate. And what that does is it really prevents a truly independent board from being formed over a possible Western RTO. And so until we can fix that, which would require a legislative change, it's going to be, I think, increasingly challenging to, to realize that RTO in the West. Jose, give us your perspective from the American Council on Renewable Energy. What are the major impediments to getting more transmission, more electricity shared across the regions of the country? Just from a pure reliability and resiliency that's really needed across our grid, there's the importance of moving renewable, clean, affordable, renewable energy across the country from places that are really have an abundant resource, such as Texas. And how do we get that to the places, the large load centers where we have the large populations and the large energy demands? And until we recognize as a country that there has to be just a commitment to transmission expansion, one that not only accelerates and deals with some of the shortcomings that we have in our processes and impediments that we have to that expansion, both regionally and interregionally, but at the same time, how do we do this in a cost-effective way that we don't do it on a project-by-project -project basis? There are just significant amount of challenges across uh, the entire system. Our country is experiencing more and more storms that are quite damaging, that put people at risk 
um, not only from their livelihood, their expectations, their needs, but in some cases, cost of life. What we have seen in many of those cases, and we have released several studies here at the organization, that if we had that capability to really bring in or move power from regions to regions, that resilience would be incredibly valuable to allow some of those very catastrophic events to really not have the kind of impact that we're seeing having, particularly in Texas a couple of years ago with Winterstorm Uri and others. So those are some of the things that we believe are incredibly important. We are excited that we are seeing a few members of Congress pushing bills in this direction, such as the more recent bill by Senator Heinrich and Representative Kasten, the Interregional Transmission Planning and Improvement Act, which really would help FERC issue some of the rulemaking to evaluate some of these interregional transmission planning processes. We also most recently saw a interim report that's out for comment by the Department of Energy on the opportunities for interregional transmission. It's another one that we're very supportive of. Pat, as you mentioned, Texas has its own grid called ERCOT. It's kind of an island that has allowed Texas to do things like add a lot of wind and solar quickly and spread costs for power distribution out among all customers, which is something that might be harder to sell uh, in different areas. So give us your perspective on sort of these pros and cons of that single state grid um, and what we can learn from that. The beauty of the single state for me, having been a regulator, I'm probably the only human that got to do both, both at the federal level with multi-state jurisdictions and within the one state that's not in that fabric, is it allowed us to unify the regulatory approach at the wholesale level, which is the level between and among power generators and the big customers, and the individual retail customer? And so there was a unified vision there, which was very customer-centric from Governor Bush's lips to to me and to the other commissioners to really focus on the whole ball of wax. And so in the federal jurisdiction, the feds do the wholesale part and the states do the retail part. It works, and it works actually okay up in the, particularly in the mid-Atlantic states, for example, where competition uh, started uh, back in the 90s. So it's not impossible, but it just was easier for us to have that unified vision, Ariana. And then with regard to these issues that we've been talking about on transmission, clearly that's a wholesale issue. And and I tried to bring some of that simplicity of the Texas model to FERC when I uh, took over up there in 2001. It wasn't as easy to import those ideas because the Made in Texas label wasn't hugely a popular thing to be saying in Washington, D.C., even with Bush as president. But nonetheless, we were able to get uh, some relatively straightforward cost recovery mechanisms for expanding the transmission grids all over the country, both in California, New England came forth with a relatively straightforward ways of paying for those transmission expansions. And again, transmission is a relatively minor cost of the retail customer's bill. So that did make it easier to get through. We weren't talking about half the bill going up to three-fourths of the bill. We're talking about 6% of the bill going to maybe 8% of the bill so that we had a robust backbone for customers to benefit from competitive and clean power. So those those policies, actually, we see them in a lot of the country now. Uh, some of those were baked in our oven in Texas, but A lot of these we all worked on together and just tried to figure it out as we got this huge onslaught of good technology allowing renewables to be cheaply obtained and used has just transformed the last 25 years. I mean, now wind and solar are the two cheapest resources, so it's an economic imperative that we get those and bring that value to our customers. So it's been nice for us all to figure these things out together, but you're right, transmission and how to pay for it's a big piece of that. Jennifer, you're vice chair of the Western Energy Imbalance Market. Can you give us the sort of layperson elevator pitch for what that market is and why it's important? So what the EIM does is it's a real-time market. And what this means is that it allows utilities to buy and sell energy close to the operating hour. And they're doing this essentially instantaneously rather than having to do it through bilateral contracts. By exchanging energy close to the operating hour, they're able to balance supply and demand in real time, as we say. And that's really important because a lot of times 
when we can't keep energy and demand in constant um, balance, that's when we risk reliability events. And also, that's also when we're likely to see renewable energy curtailments, which is which essentially just means that we have to turn off our, our wind farms or our sol- solar farms because we don't need that excess generation. So the EIM is not only great for grid reliability by enabling those transactions to happen so that utilities can keep their supply and demand balanced, but it's also helping us take full advantage of the renewable energy capacity that we have in the West. I think about it as an RTO kind of with training wheels. So it's basically letting power companies sell power to each other directly, quickly um, to keep that supply and demand in balance. But it's uh, an easier way of doing that than having some kind of long, complicated contract or some more official thing. So essentially, it's just like buying and selling what they need when they need it. Yeah, I think that's a really nice way to sum it up. Thank you. And I would add that, you know, I said it was like an RTO with training wheels because it doesn't offer all of the market services of of an RTO. We don't see the coordinated transmission planning that we've been talking a lot about. And we're really missing out on most of the energy transactions that occur in the market. When you look at the EIM, only 5 to 10% of energy transactions are occurring in real time, which is what the EIM encompasses. But when we look at day ahead operations, which is an important market attribute we can add to the EIM, we're actually dealing with around 90 to 95% of energy transactions. So that's where the real benefits can be obtained. Right. So utilities want to be able to plan ahead by a day, plan ahead by a day so that they can better manage their flow of power and and supply their customers. That makes sense. That's right. Jose, you mentioned that the Department of Energy is studying where to build some high-capacity power lines to help bring more renewables onto the grid. This would also lower cost for customers, hopefully, and improve resilience, especially during extreme weather events. DOE has about $15 billion authorized for grid expansion under the bipartisan infrastructure law. So can you tell us what your hopes are for this work uh, ongoing at DOE? The bipartisan infrastructure law... Um stood up many offices at DOE, including the grid deployment offices and many other enhancements to the loan program office. As you alluded to, there's there's significant amount of resources that have to be mobilized. And I'll just highlight a few of them. And specifically to the deployment of new technologies and the role of innovation, because that's also something that's incredibly important to kind of also work in conjunction with transmission expansion. There's $10.5 billion out of those 15 that are really on grid resilience and innovative partnership. This is going to be the place where the department is looking at everything from high voltage DC uh, transmission lines and innovation, what could be done within the existing infrastructure to enhance the capability of the existing grid itself as we as we deal with expansion. That's going to be incredibly, incredibly important. Also on the Inflation Reduction Act, there's nearly a billion dollars in grants to facilitate siting and permitting of interstate, both on onshore and offshore transmission lines, as well as $5 billion for uh, guaranteed loans that will be administered through the loan program office. The other thing that's important here is that there's $100 million for convening and stakeholder groups. So applications the states could work with the department and the federal agencies to work together. That's something that hasn't been available before because we know that some of these challenges are not only driven by technology or opportunities or challenges that we have on, on our queues, et cetera, uh, convening. Some of the resources are not there to allow folks to engage in a meaningful way and have state collaborations and so forth. So we're tracking all of these. I think the department's going to have a critical role to play to d- designate, in essence, different corridors of national interest that hopefully could facilitate Uh, some of the opportunities to build out new transmissions and work closely with the Federal Energy Regulatory uh, Commission on those. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about modernizing our electric grids. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. You can do it right now on your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations. Coming up... How do smaller size projects like residential solar and battery walls fit into the bigger regional grids? Some combination of what I'm going to call big grid and and small grid efforts will be necessary to reach our decarbonization goals. That's up next. One of the fundamental elements needed to bring the grids into the future is to have connections and flows that are similar to our interstate highways. 
Right, these high voltage transmission corridors would allow power to move across regions and bring electricity from where it's plentiful, often in rural places, to where it's needed, like big cities. Let's get back to my conversation with Pat Wood, Jose Zayas, and Jennifer Gardner. As we were discussing before the break, the Department of Energy is currently studying where some of these corridors could be put. I asked Pat Wood about the likelihood of that kind of system being built. Federal Energy Regulatory Commission had jurisdiction over natural gas pipelines, which is relatively complete. So if you're building a pipeline from, say, Utah to Oregon or from Texas to New York, FERC is kind of the one-stop shop where you get that done. There's not an equivalent process for the multi-state transmission line. I think we probably left too much on the table as far as compromise on jurisdiction with states such that uh, a court two years, three years later, effectively gutted the law. And so we've now been sitting for almost two decades now trying to get that back. And so I'm really hopeful that what Jose described can really play out where DOE does the, the hardcore technical analytical work to figure out where are the right corridors. And then FERC goes through the normal environment, environmental siting process to get those lines routed correctly to minimize the impact in the environment and to customers and to you know, citizens, landowners, and to get them built. Because we've got a continent where so much of the resource is where the people aren't. So the wind is in the middle part of the country, go from Texas straight up to Manitoba, and these great big sunshine smiling on San Diego to about Austin. And you just need to move that around to where the people are. And so that requires big transmission. And that's that's a lot of work. Uh, I will tell you, you know, from those that built the highways 75 years ago, the country had a lot less people 75 years ago, and so it was easier to route those. That's true of transmission lines, too. Just 20 years ago, when we had this law the first time, it would have been so much easier to do than it is today. But there's no turning back now. We've committed to a low-carbon agenda. We've got a continent worth of low-carbon resource. If we can't connect the dots, shame on us. True. Jose? The reality is that The United States is blessed with an abundant domestic resource. And it's just, in some cases, as Pat alluded to, not in the right place to connect it to where the large load centers are. And as we think about the needs and the opportunities that face all of us, the thing that at least keeps me up at night is that transmission expansion, it's hard to do and it takes a long time. When we look at the Inflation Reduction Act, it really now has provided certainty where certainty really hasn't been afforded to many of these industries. We have a decade of set of policies that can bring forth not only existing technologies like land-based wind and land-based solar, which we have an abundance, as well as emerging technologies such as storage and hydrogen and offshore wind and others. But when we look at that opportunity, the reality is doing these large transmission lines in the framework that we have today can take over a decade. And, and we just don't have that kind of time if we're talking about meeting the decarbonization goals that we've put forth as a country. Or if, if, if you want to talk about a climate change, there's a huge mismatch in where the opportunities and the timing realities are. And that's something that we as a society and as a country need to reflect on. I'm so glad that you mentioned the timeliness of this and the urgency, because that's really critical. So we've been talking about transmission, which is basically getting power from one place to another. And there's other elements, part of this grid modernization discussion, and one of them is what's called interconnection. And so this is actually for projects that are built, whether it's coal or solar or wind, they have to be connected to those big transmission lines or to local transmission lines and be able to send that power different places. And there is a huge backlog of these projects waiting to get connected to the grid. A lot of them are wind, solar and battery. I think New York Times estimated them at like 8,000. So, Pat, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission is currently working on accelerating and streamlining their process. As a former FERC chairman, do you think that what they're working on is going to help resolve this backlog? Well, it can't get worse. Um, <laughs> I will say that the when I got there in 01, we did put a pro- the process in place that is, has been working since that time. So <laughs> hopefully each step is better than the one that preceded it. And what's happening now is that multiple projects are coming in, and and this is a competitive market at work, so this is a good thing. But multiple projects are coming in, 
kind of like a CVS and a Walgreens, all like to be built on the same corner. They looked at the same engineering data and said, this is a good place to build. So they all apply to be at that same place. And so the utility studying it for engineering is going, I've got to look at that and study that. But which one do I study first? So first got to give some clarity about how do we, if, and the right answer, honestly, is cluster. Do it all and, and look them all collectively together. Don't worry about who came in first in line. And if you have to, if you have to allocate the costs among the people, allocate them just kind of peanut pro rata. The, the engineering study part's hard enough, but the other part that's really hard at the federal level is that the cost allocation for those upgrades for that interconnection is not free. And so in Texas, we just pass the cost all down to the, all the end use customers because they're the ones that are going to pay anyway at the end of the day. So let's just short circuit the process and get it over with. That is a showstopper in other parts of the nation. So I would say keep the engineering things as, as simplified as you can by studying things at the same time. And then to the extent there is a cost, spread that cost fairly among the others. Not like the musical chairs game when the last guy standing gets the bill and everybody else gets it for free. That's That creates just a lot of gaming behavior. People spend more time worrying about the game than they worry about getting clean power to the customer, which is wrong, then we can really shorten this interconnection queue process, which you know has now moved from months to years in some yeah. parts of the country. So Jose and Jennifer, how do renewable energy developers work around this backlog? And does it deter project development? Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory just issued what they call their queued report. And this report really tries to at least create awareness and quantify exactly what, what Pat was alluding to. And and the challenge is in that the queue is, is quite large. It's growing at, at, a, at a very large rate. Just to put it into perspective, I believe that last year there was about 1,350 gigawatts or 1.3 terawatts. And this year is close to uh, 2,000 gigawatts or 2 terawatts. So it's grown almost by 600 in one year, which is daunting. Many of the projects that we're seeing today are, are projects that, that are new, have new um, approaches, such as hybrid energy systems, solar plus batteries, and, and, and so forth. So it's also changing. So I think there's a lot of opportunities you know, for FERC to, to really look at these processes, you know, develop standards, rules of engagement, for lack of a better word, and how do we handle with with the ever-growing queue and how do we create certainty to the industry because that's incredibly incredibly needed. You know, the numbers, we're, we're talking about under the IRA that we will more than double the amount of generation that we're, we're seeing. And, and that's, that's going to create only more pressures in a system that's already quite uh, inefficient. Certainty is incredibly important uh, for these projects and for developers who have a significant amount of investment that is, that is put forward either from a project or everything that we're talking about. So, I think that's going to be key to provide um, that kind of clarity that these projects need and also to meet the timeline that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, and I've, I think I've seen estimates we need something like four times the amount of transmission. So, Jennifer? I would argue that KISO um, is kind of known for being ahead of the curve, particularly when it comes to renewable energy integration within its markets. One thing that they struggle with, however, just like every organized market in the country, is this interconnection queue issue and the backlog of interconnection queue requests. So just to give some data unique to California, over the past decade, uh, the CAISO, the California Independent System Operator, has received an average of 113 interconnection proposals per year. But in 2021, so this is a couple years ago, as the state was accelerating its procurement for renewable energy and storage resources to meet the state's clean energy goals, the applications for new projects more than tripled to 373. Tripled, and, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it is a lot. And Pat and Jose have been talking about the need to move towards a clustering process when we're analyzing these requests. And KISO has actually been using a clustering process since 2008. And it... I think, you know, it works, but it's it's not fail-proof by any means. And so KISO has initiated a stakeholder process to further refine the way that it handles interconnection queue requests because they have quite the backlog that they need to work through as well. House Republicans recently passed a bill that, among other things, sought to streamline the federal permitting process for energy infrastructure, in this case, particularly oil and gas. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer declared that bill dead on arrival, but Democrats want to see reform of permitting renewables. Next week, the Senate is beginning hearings on permitting reform, and this has kind of been in the news lately. Um, 
Pat, where is their middle ground between Republicans and Democrats on permitting reform here? Well, it is, it's classic setup for middle ground. I think that's where Joe Manchin was trying to go with this because, you know, he's a Democrat, so he knows where the people in his party are on, on the clean energy agenda, but he's also from a hydrocarbon state and understands those issues. So, I, I, again, it is classic paralysis by just lack of bipartisanship that's keeping that from going forward. Where to focus? One-stop shop, as we talked about with regard to FERC on natural gas, clear direction on what to do with regard to climate impacts of whether it's transmission for renewables or a natural gas or oil pipeline under the ground. Tell the FERC or whichever agency, even this that case would be the FERC, tell them what you need them to find out to do their NEPA review, their National Energy uh, Environmental, like, environmental review. Policy right. Act. Yes, to do their environmental reviews that are required under federal law. Don't short circuit them. Do the reviews, but do them, you know, within a time frame. Have one agency be in charge, not give a veto power to three different agencies at the state or federal level, but just say, hey, buck stops with you, FERC. But you're required under law to take everything into consideration, and you have the ability to say no. And this is true for whether it's a gas pipeline or for a big power line bringing in wind power from the Midwest. They should both be subject to the same fair review and the same um, environmental analysis for the impact on wildlife, on people, on water and air that everything else is responsible to. And that kind of one-size-fits-all approach, it strikes people as fair. And so the, the, the thing in the middle is that solution that appeals to the, the people in the middle, which is what's the fair shot at the, for the utility of the developer trying to improve the infrastructure here? Because that's what the point is. Was, it's not a wire or a pipe for the pipe's sake. It's to facilitate modern life in a modern nation that is less impactful to the environment than what we did a decade ago or a century ago. And so we should all be embracing that vision. Yeah, yeah. Jennifer, elsewhere in this show, we talk with Michelle Moore. She's CEO of Groundswell, which is working to connect solar and energy efficiency with economic development and affordability in rural areas. And she's a big proponent and advocate for decentralizing some of this power generation, having organizations, churches, nonprofits own their own panels, for example, with solar and provide power hyper-locally. If we were to build out sufficient power like this in a decentralized fashion, how much do you think we could reduce our dependence on the larger grid, on larger projects that can sometimes be controversial? Big, huge solar and wind fields can be controversial. So in my personal opinion, I believe that, you know, some combination of what I'm going to call big grid and, and small grid efforts will be necessary to reach our decarbonization goals. I don't think it boils down to necessarily one or the other, Ariana. I think that they need to try to work together, which is, of course, an increasingly challenging thing to do. Pat? This is the part of the world where I'm spending most of my career now, which is in the small grid, as um, Jennifer was calling it. I really do see that like the rest of our society, the world is decentralizing, whether it's in the media and other parts of our culture and the economy. Everything is decentralizing. And so while I agree with Jennifer that you can't go all the way. In fact, that would be like putting all your IRA in bonds instead of a mixture of stocks and cash and bonds, is you want to kind of bet on both. Um, we did do some steps at FERC back in the early 2000s to to lay the groundwork for standard interconnection process for little little assets, as well as big generators on the grid. So the place to hurry is on the smaller grid, I think. The interconnection timelines are shorter. Uh, our queues are much shorter at the at the distribution level than they are. The unfortunate thing, though, is the distribution grid wasn't really built for that. You know, you think about the transmission grid, it's like a kind of a, a, a web. So things come and move in all directions. The transmission grid fed the distribution grid and pushed the power one way to your house. Well, gosh, now we've got people with solar panels on their house like I do, or people with a battery in their garage like I do, or electric vehicles in the garage. And you've got, you know, farms that generate some wind power that they want to put back on the grid. So you've got a lot of things going in two directions now on the 
the distribution grid. So that investment in that grid is just is a big dollar price tag that's about to come. But we've got to do it because we want to have this highly resilient, decentralized, uh, you know, I like to quote Daddy Bush, thousand points of light where you've got not just the central grid keeping everybody alive, but everybody on the edge keeping the whole grid up. So let's double down, invest on both the big grid and the small grid and serve our customers the way they need to be, which is reliably and sustainably. There's been this push by some Midwestern states to consider right of first refusal laws. These essentially would like privilege the local power utilities, which are often monopolies, as opposed to allowing more competition from outside markets. Is that going to ultimately end up hurting the customer more than these utilities? You know, I've I've long been a fan that the, the competitive market serves customers better than a regulated one. Um, you know, we still got to regulate the power lines and, and poles and wires business because it's a natural monopoly still. But power generation is not a monopoly. Power sales is not a monopoly. It, it was designated one under laws a century ago. But customers are better served by letting creators and op- entrepreneurs and innovators into the world to, to really push the technology and push the business models and push the savings in the same way that it has in the telecom industry, for example. Yeah, there will be great big players um, like there are in that industry, but there will also be tons of uh, people playing in the margin and in that interstitial space where the creativity sparks can happen. So let's keep the regulated entities doing the, the delivery of power, but let's let the innovation and the generation and the, and the marketing of the products and the sales of power be done by creative people who can do that and know how to do that. What's one high point listeners should take away from this conversation we've had today? Jennifer? I think just speaking from the perspective of of what's happening in the West, I I am encouraged to see what I view as an increasing momentum towards not only um, more organized market frameworks, but also additional transmission infrastructure. Jose, how about you? Yeah, I would just add that you know, with the recent passage of the bipartisan infrastructure law and the IRA, I think now, and the fact that these technologies are now really got into a very cost competitive landscape, coupled with the fact that, as I shared earlier, our nation has an abundant resources of wind and solar and many other resources that we can depend on that have showcased at scale, that they can provide cost effective, reliable electricity. And Pat, one highlight for people to take away. At the turn of the millennium, there were a handful of wind farms in California and maybe a couple of other states. And there were a number of hydroelectric dams, particularly in California, New York, and some of the northern states and in the, in the Pacific Northwest. And there were maybe a solar farm or two, period. In 23 years, we've come a long way. So we don't want the listener to walk away and think, oh, gosh, this is never going to happen. Tremendous progress has happened in the last quarter century. I think both within the organized markets and outside the organized markets, renewable energy is that irrepressible force that cannot be stopped. At the end of the day, I'm very optimistic that, as history proves, the good guy wins. And so this will happen. Well, great. We'll leave it there. Pat Wood is CEO of Hunt Power. Jennifer Gardner is vice chair of the Western Energy Imbalance Market. And Jose Zayas is executive vice president of policy and programs with the American Council on Renewable Energy. Thank you all so much for joining us today on Climate One. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Ariana. Coming up, what might the energy transition look like in rural America? We're in the middle of an extraordinary transformation of our energy systems from fossil fuel to clean power. One that in and of itself will also create haves and have nots, or it will be an opportunity to really reinvest in our rural communities and help bring prosperity back. That's up next. Rural America currently has the burden of the highest energy bills at a time when the cost of everything else is rising and wages are not keeping pace. 
As we transition to renewable energy, there's a chance for rural areas to get a seat at the table in a just and equitable way. I talked about that with Michelle Moore, CEO of Groundswell and author of Rural Renaissance, Revitalizing America's Hometowns Through Clean Power. I asked Michelle to explain the history of the massive electrification projects that brought power to so many rural areas. Not even a hundred years ago, the vast majority of America didn't have electric power. Our rural communities, our farms couldn't turn the lights on at night. I had to wash clothes by hand and heat water and food by the fire. And it was just an extraordinary hardship and one that exacerbated the economic divide between the haves and have-nots. And as a part of the New Deal, and thanks to the leadership of Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his administration at the time, America launched the Rural Electrification Administration, the Tennessee Valley Authority, and in just under 15 years, brought electric power to more than 99% of America. It was an extraordinary, great public work that lifted communities across this country out of poverty. And that was coming out of the Great Depression. We're coming out of COVID. What about our current moment is similar to that electrification era, and what's different? The Inflation Reduction Act, which just passed the Congress and was signed into law last year, is the biggest investment in rural power in America in a hundred years. It's extraordinary. You know, clearly today, the vast majority of Americans, more than 99.9% have access to electricity. Um, but we're in the middle of an extraordinary transformation of our energy systems from fossil fuel to clean power, you know, from centralized systems to rooftop solar and energy storage at your home, at your school, or at the hospital. And it's a similar scale of transformation and one that in and of itself will also create haves and have-nots, or it will be an opportunity to really reinvest in our rural communities and help bring prosperity back at the same time we're distributing clean power. So many, many parallels Um, But the choices that we make in how we implement, like how do we transform our energy systems, that's going to tell the tale about whether the Inflation Reduction Act will help to reinvest in our rural communities at the same time. Right. What specifically is going to be in this Inflation Reduction Act for rural communities to address the justice issues you're talking about? The Inflation Reduction Act was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages long. So I'm just going to highlight a few things that are particularly important for rural communities to be aware of. One, and I think this is one of the most powerful policy changes in that whole bill, is that the federal tax credits that are a very important and a very significant incentive for solar electricity and for energy storage and for all kinds of other clean power technologies can now be directly paid to nonprofits, including churches, including rural electric cooperatives, and including municipal utilities. Now, before, tax credits were only available to individuals and institutions who were wealthy enough to have a big tax bill. And what that meant is that wealthy people and wealthy companies could own their solar assets and everybody else had to pay rent. The direct pay option for the solar tax credit means that everybody can participate now. It really levels the playing field. And so rural cooperative utilities, local churches, other nonprofit institutions can own solar, can own clean energy systems, and can participate in the full wealth-building potential of asset ownership. It's a game changer. How can energy efficiency measures also help address this persistent poverty? When we look at a map, and we examine where do the poorest people pay the most for electricity, it's in our rural communities, it's in rural counties across the country. And it's not because rural utilities charge more for energy, it's because people are living in older, less efficient housing. And when I talk about a high energy burden, I'm talking about states where on average, low-income households pay 20 plus percent of their entire household income 
just to keep the lights on. You know, at that level, you're choosing between paying your car note and paying your electricity bill or paying for groceries or paying for your electricity bill. And it's choices that people just really shouldn't have to be making. And investing in energy efficiency, you know, is a way to improve housing quality and also to bring that electricity bill back into alignment. Because on average, more affluent households in America only pay about 3% of their total income for electricity. And anything above 6% is considered to be an untenable energy burden. Many electric utilities don't actually make the electricity they deliver. It's bought on the wholesale market. In the case of rural electric cooperatives, many have power agreements with larger generation and transmission authorities in their region, meaning they buy most or all of their power from these bigger, largely fossil fuel powered utilities. That makes it hard for local co-ops to move to more renewables because they're often limited by how much they can buy outside their main contract. But some are starting to fight that. Tell us about the case of Delta Montrose Electric Association. The types of contracts that you're talking about, Greg, are called all requirements contracts. And they can be very long-term, up to 20 years, sometimes even more. And not only are they long contracts, but sometimes small utilities, you know, rural utilities, where you know, imagine communities where populations have gone down and economic opportunity has gone down over time. Maybe they're not using all the power that they're contracted for either. So they have an excess, you know, of generation um, on top of it all. And Delta Montrose filed a lawsuit against the utility that they bought their power from um, because they had locally committed to a specific percentage of clean power um, and their their primary utility contractor couldn't provide that clean power. So they wanted out of their contract because their contract wasn't giving them what their community had decided that they wanted. And what was really a landmark case, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, because the energy landscape is full of crazy acronyms, y'all. Um, but FERC decided that um, if the generating utility couldn't provide clean power, then local utilities had the ability to get out of those contracts and to be able to produce a specific amount of clean power within their own territory. And this really freed up you know, utilities all over the country to be able to have a cleaner power mix and also to be able to build it themselves, to keep the value of that generation and the value of the projects that were generating power more local. And more than 90% of the persistent poverty counties in America are served by rural electric cooperatives. So that means these small, local, ultimately nonprofit 501c12 utilities you know, have an incredibly important economic development mission. So it's not only about generating more clean power, you know, where that is the goal that we are moving towards as a country, where that is the goal that the local utility has set forth for itself. But it's also about making sure that that clean power is connected to local economic opportunity. And the counter narrative is often from proponents of fossil fuels, they will say affordable, reliable, affordable, reliable, affordable, reliable. And they argue that it's fossil fuels that are are most affordable, that green costs more. Clean power is extremely affordable. And in many states, it's even more affordable than fossil fuel sources of electricity. In my home state of Georgia, uh, solar power particularly big solar power installations, you know, are helping to reduce bills. And if we think about some of the big companies out there that have committed to 100% renewable energy or 24 by 7 renewable energy, you know, they're not paying more for solar power. They're not paying more for wind power. You know, they're signing long-term power purchase agreements, which they're energy contracts, that are committing them not only to 100% clean, Uh, but also at significant savings. And when we talk about reliability, I think we also have to talk about resilience. And when we pair on-site renewables like solar on your rooftop or solar on the roof of a hospital or of a school building that's used as a shelter with energy storage, like a battery, you're able to keep the lights on at your home no matter what happens on the grid. So you're getting affordable reliable, 
and resilient energy. And that works at the large scale, too. There's been a lot of hand-wringing about the depopulation of rural America and what that means for small towns and rural economies. Some of that's due to the commodification and industrialization of agriculture, which employs fewer people. Describe your vision of how that trend can be reversed with clean power development. Well, when we look at actually what's happening, there have been more people moving back to smaller towns and rural communities mm-hmm. since covid mm-hmm. For the first time in in uh, decades, actually, you know, so there's a desire out there, and we'll see if that trend continues. But clean power can be an important part of it in two ways. You know, number one, think about remote work, and think about even running a small business somewhere. You know, to quote one mayor in North Carolina, you know, no business wants to be located where the internet sucks. <laughs> And there are an awful lot of places in rural America where the internet sucks. But that's what many rural Americans are dealing with, many rural school children too. So you got to have broadband. And broadband is actually a really critical part of the clean energy future. Because we can't have all these smart appliances. We can't have all these super energy efficient systems that talk to the grid and talk to one another without having broadband connections. So that's number one. You know, number two, by having cleaner power and distributed power, you know, available throughout rural America, we're also investing those jobs in rural communities too. Um, You know, we think about rural communities often Mm -hmm. as being primarily agriculture in terms of, you know, where the economic opportunity is coming from, but an awful lot of manufacturing companies site their facilities in rural communities too. Just look at where all these EV factories, battery factories, solar panel factories are going. It's rural Tennessee, northern Alabama, north Georgia, Kentucky. You know, many communities, whereas before a lot of their jobs came from coal mining and from burning coal, you know, we're now going to be from manufacturing batteries. And so thinking about economic justice, right? Where are we building our clean energy future? Where are people losing opportunity because the extractive, you know, economy of our past is going away? We have an opportunity to connect those dots while we build a clean energy future, too. Michelle Moore is CEO of Groundswell, a nonprofit that builds community power by connecting solar and energy efficiency with economic development, affordability, and quality of life. She's author of Rural Renaissance, Revitalizing America's Hometowns Through Clean Power. Thank you so much for sharing your insights on Climate One. Thank you. It's been a blessing to be with y'all today. On this Climate One, we've been talking about modernizing our multiple grids. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your pods. Talking about climate can be hard, and it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. You can do it right now on your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. By sharing, you can help people have their own deep and meaningful climate conversations. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Ariana Brocious is co-host, editor, and producer. Austin Colon is producer and editor. Megan Basilia is our production manager. Wincy Shada is our development manager. And Ben Testani is our communications manager. Our theme music was composed by George Young. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.